0: can't analyze your way to transformation. Welcome to the IO Idea Podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Saul Kaplan. Saul is an innovation junkie, the founder and chief catalyst of the Business Innovation Factory, also known as BIF, and author of the Business Model Innovation Factory How to Stay Relevant When the World is Changing. Saul started BIF in 2005 with a mission to enable business model innovation. BIF makes transformational change safer and easier to manage for institutional leaders by helping them explore, test, and commercialize next practices and new business models. Saul shares his journey from pharmacy to management consulting to economic development to innovation. I really appreciated how Saul synthesizes what he learned as a scientist, business leader, and accidental bureaucrat to leverage human-centered design to address complex problems. In the episode, we mix it up on the difference between market-making and share-taking business perspectives, and why understanding the people in the ecosystem, rapid prototyping, and checking our egos at the door are essential as we address truly wicked problems. Saul shares the importance of human-centered collaboration and his approach to innovation. I appreciated his insight. The truth is systems problems require system solutions. Another key idea Saul shares is Roger Martin's innovator definition. An innovator is someone with a clear and strong point of view, and they know they're missing something, and they hunt for what's missing. It was an honor having Saul join me on the show. I'd like to thank him for his time and perspective. I hope you enjoy the episode. Saul, thank you so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind, for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Uh, first of all, hi, Matt. Uh, it's great to, great to be with you. It's, uh, it's a real honor to, to, to be with you to mix it up on this uh, podcast. Um, well, I usually just describe myself as a hopeful innovation junkie. Uh, It's kind of the central thread that goes through uh, my uh, entire messy, crazy journey, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into. uh, But uh, I just eat, sleep, and breathe uh, innovation, uh, which is a blessing and a curse, right? We're always uh, thinking there's a better way, no matter what we're presented with right? There's a better way, which makes us uh, pain in the ass, right? Uh, you know, because you don't celebrate the victories very much. Uh, it's also, a, it's a curse because nothing's ever done. It's always unfinished business. You're always moving on to the next thing, uh, but it's also a blessing because you're always trying to make people's lives better solve problems. And I'll take the blessing uh, over the curse uh, all the time. That's, uh, I'm a hopeful innovation junkie.
0: I I love it on the on the innovation front and the design front one of the things that I talk about with my friends is how it's hard to unsee like bad design or or innovation opportunity right I mean so based on what you said I can imagine like sometimes I bore my family by just walking down the street and pointing out something that just seems kind of strange or uh also giving a good nod to good design like oh that was that was Pretty cool how they did that, but uh, are you are you plagued with seeing that everywhere?
1: Yeah, uh, we notice everything, don't we? <laughs> yeah. And noticing is a real superpower, uh, really important uh, to pay attention. And you know, I was talking with my, uh, I had uh, two of my three children visiting uh, this past weekend, uh, and we literally talked about that. Like we all just notice things now. You know the beautiful part of that is you observe things, right? You know, the pain in the ass part of that is you take things that you notice. You know and the next thing you know, you get obsessed with them and you go down rabbit holes and you drive people crazy uh, around you. I would not have it any other way. I don't think anyone in my family uh, would. Uh, a lot of other people I hang around with, uh, I think, like it in doses, right? <laughs> they like it for a while, and then they like. to to separate from it a little while where they can just you know relax and not have to go down every rabbit hole uh, that, uh, you know, that I get uh,
0: intrigued by. So you've, you've had quite an interesting uh, career arc and I want to really get into where you're at now, but I, I don't want to, I don't want to just skip the journey, but how did you, really get started as an innovation junkie when when did you realize that maybe this this thing is called innovation or you're always interested in improvement how things work can you go back to a time that you remember that like uh, that type of mentality
1: well, I've always been that uh, been that way. Uh, the words have changed over time, you know, and the identities have changed, but but the what, what's underlying it uh, has never changed. You know, my mom would always tell me, you know, like I I was I've always been curious. You know, I've always you know kind of pivoted towards things that uh, nobody could ever figure out why, you know, I pivoted them or why I was interested in them. Uh, so it's just always been true. I think I started using the moniker. You know becoming more aware of it you know as I was you know, heading into and out of college you know I needed a central through line because uh, i'm I'm the type like most innovation junkies you know that have to have an image of the future you know something you're trying to achieve or change to or you know, some target right even though that changes all the time um, you know so uh, I've always uh, been like that and so I've been an innovation junkie through multiple phases uh, of my journey uh, and I can fly very quickly you know, through like the major chapters. It's easier to do in h- hindsight, isn't it? Yeah, uh, right. Than it is when you're in the messy business of living it. Uh, but for me, it's been pretty simple. I mean, the through line was always, you know, that there's a better way, always as an innovation junkie. So in every context I was in, I started uh, as a scientist, uh, MBA, Interested in how technology diffuses into the marketplace, just as all these new sexy technologies were coming uh, in. And I worked in what I would call industrial America, corporate America, right? You know, so I learned how to be successful in institutional environments, in enterprise uh, environments. I started in industry. Uh, I I had been a, I had studied pharmacy as an undergraduate. Uh, which I loved, even though I never had intentions of filling prescriptions behind a retail drug counter, not that there's anything wrong with that, it just wasn't what I was interested in, but I loved the science of it. I loved learning about it, and I I didn't know what I was gonna do, but I knew I would uh, apply it and use it as a foundation. So anyway, I went into the pharma industry, uh, and lo and behold, um, I had the opportunity early in my career to work on a product called Prozac and to help plan for its introduction uh, into the US market, which was amazing. Uh, I, I still uh, you know, pinch myself that I had the opportunity to work on this. Uh, you know, one of the most important products in the industry at the time in an area that has become a real passion of mine. You know, how, do we, how do we approach and improve mental health and well-being? And Prozac was this sexy technology that everybody was interested in and i usually say that it was successful despite us uh, but it was really an interesting product and it taught me one of my life lessons uh, which is the difference between market making and share taking right which is something i've used throughout my entire journey This, this difference between the way most of the world works and i don't mean this in a negative way most people organizations and communities are really good share takers. This is the industry I compete in. This is how a hospital works. This is how a doctor's office works. This is how a library works, right? And how do I do it better, right? And and my comparison are other libraries, other hospitals, other companies in the same industry. And you learned how to be a better share taker. One, protect the share you already had, And then how do I I take new share away from that well-defined marketplace? Uh, And that's the way most of the world works. People are share takers. Organizations are share takers. You learn how to be a better share taker when you get an MBA. Uh, And I got interested in the opposite, right? I got interested in something I called market makers and market making. These were people, organizations and communities that somehow didn't play by the rules, didn't see the industry or the market or what a hospital or a school should be, you know, the way everyone else did. They said, what if we could imagine a different one, a new one? What if we could take advantage of all these new technologies that are raining on us, you know, to actually reimagine the way value gets created, delivered and captured? and so i've been fascinated by market making my whole career and really learning how to identify one when i see one a person a company a community and then at biff which we'll talk about how to create the tools and communities that are able to work in that world to constantly reimagine new models not just incremental changes to the one they have so after industry i went into consulting a uh, long uh, successful track record as a road warrior consultant uh you know at arthur d little i ran my own boutique so i learned how to be an entrepreneur and then i got dragged into what was anderson consulting and became accenture as a very senior partner helping them drive uh, their practice growth around the world in the pharmaceutical medical product uh, and i even worked in the healthcare delivery side for a while so now I could apply all of this thinking about market making on behalf of my clients on be, and on behalf of building that practice. I'm still learning today all the things I learned as a road warrior. The biggest takeaway from, for me from all of that you know, was that leaders talked a, game, a good game about transformation, but what they really wanted to, was to be better share takers, because right? that's how they got valued, that's how the stock price it was reflected, right? How do I take share away from the industry, other companies in the industry that I compete with? And that's what we did. And we created a lot of value. Even though we called it transformation, it really wasn't, right? So I kept coming back to this notion of we, we need better tools and ways to think about transformation. So the last kind of phase after I left consulting is what I call putting the human back in innovation, right? Uh, I I made the mistake of becoming an accidental bureaucrat. I went into government here in my home state of Rhode Island uh, after I retired from consulting uh, just to stay off of planes for a while. Uh, I had never touched government my entire career. It changed my my whole worldview and my life because during the six years I spent running an economic development agency here for the governor in my home state, I completely flipped the script and saw innovation instead of through the lens of an enterprise the way I had for all those years previous, but through the lens of the people who live here in Rhode Island, through the lens of a patient, through the lens of a student, through the lens of a citizen. And this is where I picked up uh, the superpowers of human centered design, where I went from you know, MBA scientist to stealing and borrowing and learning. I'm right next door to Rhode Island School of Design, as you know. Right. Uh, and I think we have some friends in common. Yep. Uh, and uh, I watched the way they did problem solving. They seemed to have a very different tool set, they weren't afraid to imagine a different future and then render it in a really low-fidelity prototype just to see what it looks like, right? We never did that, you know, in my corporate days. Like, we never did anything or got a nickel to fund anything, you know, unless we had spreadsheets and proved that it worked. And here were these designers that were, one, starting with the human and saying, let's design for the customer, like, not for the enterprise, right? Let's design on based on their experience. And so I literally taught myself by hanging around a lot of these folks, right? How to switch to human-centered design to drive transformational change. So BIF is all about enabling that transformation, learning the tools of that. We do human-centered design for social impact that we've worked broadly across healthcare, education and public services. And we've learned few things along the way which i'm sure uh, we can talk about that's, yeah uh, that's the that's the journey story
0: saul i love it and uh selfishly you know as somebody that just loves human centered design and 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 systems uh just hearing your story as an endorsement of somebody with scientific training MBA training like success at uh at Lilly with prozac with accenture and and still, say, it, it, at the end of the day, the true innovation is coming down to how do we best understand the humans, right, in the system and their needs. And for me, on the design side, one of the things that was really helpful to me is uh, even framing it as goal-based design. What are they trying to accomplish? Why is that? What's getting in their way? And then the the big question that usually tends to push things forward, and what do they think they'll do if they reach their goal? Right. It's, so it's like they're they're it's almost applying like the 5 whys of process engineering to kind of human goals and desires you know why are they doing this and but i just i love your journey uh i'm a, a big fan of biff so i don't want to uh, come off too much as a fanboy in in this interview but can you tell me what that what that pivot was to like i know you said kind of you know wanting to stay off planes but uh you were doing government but Again, with, with Biff bringing kind of that human side and putting that front and center, because uh, in the design community, I know Biff is highly respected. And so I just want to, like, your, your, why why would you spend time or energy doing this?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the thing that got me to it was, you know, it comes back to the conditions here in my home state of Rhode Island. We're the smallest state in the country, right? Right. Uh, got a million people jammed into it, into a thousand square miles. It's it's, it's one of the most interesting, I love it. It's beautiful, uh, it's diverse, it's quirky. We can't get out of our own way sometimes uh, here. But when you see it through the lens of an innovation jump and you've got a state that ironically was the place where the American industrial revolution started, I literally can take you to the mill that Sam Slater, when he stole the goods from the UK and came over to America, uh, and he decided uh, they were too Puritan up in Boston, uh, and needed something that was uh, what we were referred to as Rogues Island at the time, right? It fit his, you know, it fit what he wanted. You know, he, there was religious freedom here. It was just a, 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 a it was a much cooler place, uh, more like the Wild West. than what was happening not too far north of where we were. So he set up shop here, and that became the place that the Industrial Revolution actually happened. It's beautiful irony, right? So for a while, we were the center of the expansion of the American economy. Now, we're the smallest state in the union trying to play the game as a small scale place that doesn't have the resources. So as a government leader who knew nothing about government, as an accidental bureaucrat, I said, we got to flip the script here in our state. We have to see ourselves differently. We have to see ourselves as a unique place where we should be the place to reimagine what a hospital, what a school, you know, what you pick any kind of institution a government agency looks like. We should be modeling it here, taking advantage of the small world properties, right? We all know each other here. I mean, literally know each other. I mean, within three months of me taking that job, you know, I knew by first name, you know, the president of every college, of every company, you know, and we all went to meetings two or three times a week together. You know, what I call the usual suspects, you know, would get together. Uh, and so, anyway, the, the origins of me for needing a different tool set was the problems that people face on the ground, right? Getting worse and worse. Like, it is really hard to see what's happening on the ground across America, particularly in the urban spaces and particularly in populations, right? That for years and years you know, have been underserved, right? You know, at the best. You know, have had to face you know kind of racial and economic injustice. You know, at you know at its ugliest. So to solve the problems we needed to solve, we needed to reimagine these models, these institutions, the way these things work, and we had to reimagine them with humans at the core, right? So instead of treating uh, human-centered research. as as market research so that we could come back and improve our current models, right? What designers taught me was build a foundation that you can design on and design with users, right? So that you're designing based on their experience, not what's in the best interest of the enterprise itself, right? If you could separate the interests of the enterprise and design for the user experience, Right In the end, that's going to be great for institutions that put these new models out, but it's really hard to convince them to do it. It's really hard to convince people and organizations and communities to disrupt themselves. I thought the tools of human-centered design and rapid prototyping, trying new models that could put us on the path to social system transformation, Was a better theory of change, not the only way we could approach change, but the one I got most excited about. It formed the nucleus of what we did at BIF and still do at BIF. We use those tools to reimagine models that work economically, right? That work economically, that actually solve the problems that we have on the ground. They just don't work like the rest of the world works that scaled during an industrial era. That's leaving way too many people behind. So that's the origin of that.
0: Thanks so much, Saul. Yeah, I'm curious too. Is you know because I don't think we have an agreed upon or shared label for kind of the you know what what is the next age that we're in. But it's clear we're we're leaving the industrial age, and uh, we're right at that tail end where it's like a lot of business models it's the point where you're squeezing efficiency out of the system, right? You're not, you're not doing much, but I think, I think as a society, we're struggling with this shift. And I obviously I agree with you that I think human centered design and rapid prototyping is a way to test experiment on how we might deal with this complex system. One of the questions I have for you, especially your role in government. And so my, my limited perspective is where I see large businesses, uh, government institutions, I'll, I'll include universities in that, uh, in cities. You know, right now, like the RFP process for the problems that they have, Like as a designer, when I look at an RFP, they already have the solution, right? That they've said, this is the problem. We just need somebody to go build this. And uh, the irony is these are multimillion-dollar projects where it feels like a few hundred thousand dollars of prototyping to design to really figure out the problem could save government and industry a lot of money. It, but it seems like they they cook up the solution already, and then they need somebody to fix it. From your perspective, one, am I off my rocker uh, and, and, and if I'm not off my rocker, how how might we even flip that model for uh, rapid prototyping to experiment what what good framing of, of the true problems are that that large large organizations face?
1: Yeah. Well, so first of all, uh, you may very well be off your rocket, but on this, uh, on this you're not. Um, Thank you. Here, here's the way uh, you're welcome. Here's, here's the way I, I, I frame this. And I don't point fingers at anybody, right? Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not one of these people who points to people that are pedaling the bicycle really hard in today's models, right? With really good intentions. Like, I'm really careful you know, not to point fingers at them. They work in a model and a system that serves and served a lot of people really well. They're just not the right models and systems as more and more people get left behind. And so we need to introduce new ways. Here's here's what I think the difference is. I think in that industrial era, right, most of us, right, grew up, right, and we learned that we only do those things that we have reason to believe and evidence to support will be successful. So we resource ideas, and it's not just the money. Our reputations depend on, on advancing ideas that succeed, and therefore, we pick ideas to work on. Companies and institutions pick projects to do where they, have, they feel safe and that they think it's predictable. Here's the impact that this will cause, here's the outcome this will cause, here's the return that we'll get for our investment. And that's fine if you're trying to incrementally improve what already works. That's the way you should do it. You should pick between project A, B, C, or D, and we're really good at evaluating the differences between those. But based on predictions of what the outcomes might be, What I've learned over a lot of years, and it did take a lot of years, sorry, you know, to convince me because I grew up in that world, right? Uh, But now I'm all if you want to transform, not just treat. If the goal is transformation, you that's more of a generative act. You can't analyze your way to transformation. You cannot. As much as we want evidence-based to tell us exactly what to do. Sometimes we have to try something new. We've seen a lot of that in this COVID-19 crisis, right? It's a generative act. You try it quickly. You see what works. You improve it. And you can do that systematically. And learning how to do that as people, organizations, and communities is not what they taught us how to do in the industrial era. It is what's necessary now. When we're in whatever we call this new error, whether it, we call it the digital error, the network error, uh, call it whatever you want, it's not the same, right? We need to reimagine how these things happen and allow for the emergence of new models. And you've got to build out the safe spaces and the resources and different metrics for how we fail faster and how we learn new skills faster and get more comfortable trying them. Because that's the only way we reinvent ourselves, we reinvent a company, or we reinvent our communities, and yet, we continue to think we can tweak our way there in very predictable ways. And this is causing enormous pain in society right now, because it isn't working. We also, one more thing I'll say, and then I'll stop, is we're obsessed with scale too quickly, right? So... We only want to invest in solutions that can change the entire society, right? Uh, And I'm sorry, you know, I love people who think that they have the one magic bullet or point solution. If we only pass this law, if we could only invent this one technology, right? If we could only put in place my point solution, and then we all debate whose point solution is better, right? The truth is that systems challenges, require system solutions. They require us to network together lots of capabilities, some that already exist that are just stuck in the straitjacket of existing models, and some that are emerging now. We're like kids in candy stores as innovation junkies All these new emerging technologies, we don't want to use them to just do a little bit better. We want to use them to transform these models. And it's the same technologies that do both things, right? It's just a matter of how we deploy them. So it's a pretty exciting time to be an innovation junkie, but yet we're still surrounded by people who think that we're gonna analyze our way to the future when we just got to create the safe conditions and trust to be able to experiment more uh, in order to do it. I left the state government many years ago, and started to take what we learned how to do at BIF around the country and around the world, not because it's not necessary here in Rhode Island, but because unless the players are inclined to disrupt themselves, it's really hard to do. So we had to go find conditions and leaders that were ready. And ironically, now, we're all the way back in one of our cardinal projects. You know we're actually prototyping here for all the reasons i said initially rhode island was such a great place to do it we're doing it now so it's um you know it's a nice full circle to come
0: that that's great uh, a couple threads that i just want to pull on is uh i really i re- really appreciated your arc and kind of the difference between the industrial elements and also s- system challenges require systems approaches right? and um yeah, and that we don't need to scale or, you know, this, this one solution, it doesn't need to be deployed universally right now. Let's, let's test it and see what we can learn before we put well, it out.
1: Well, just one quick. We need yeah. to scale ultimately, but if we're obsessed with scale too early, we Thank never you. Yeah. allow it to emerge. Once it starts to emerge and we say, wait, this is working for, like, you know, we're yeah. testing a model now, we're going from 30 up to 400. Uh, and ultimately, our goal is to scale it, right? Yep, but if you, right. you can't answer the scale question, I can't tell you what it'll be like for a million women, you know, to be in our maternal health model, you know, until I get to four hundred. Right, so right. you have to be willing to scale organically. If it's a new model, yep. What the market wants are is predictability of tell me what it looks like, you know, at a million, you know, or ten million
0: customers? And my
1: answer is, I don't know.
0: Yep. Yeah. And, 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 Saul, uh, uh, two, two things now, one is, um, is I think as, as companies more of the operator mentality, like, you know, as they grow from like the entrepreneur to the operator, right. Is, uh, risk is a bad thing, but risk is where the innovation junkies and the designers play, right. Is like, you can't learn without, like, you need a safe place for that. and what i heard you say you said i don't know and i one of the things i'm finding like where i'm at in my career is i i think that is actually one of the most mature things a leader can say today is i don't know let's find out right it's because it's 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 getting away from the hierarchy is i need an answer to this problem and i need it in two weeks you know like it's things aren't that predictable and i think how do we help people embrace risk and uncertainty with boundaries right we're not trying to inject chaos into the system but how do we help leaders be a little bit more mature to help those around them learn and be better so that the their entire organization can can improve or disrupt
1: yeah. well i, I will t- it's a great question uh and i will tell you you know that it starts personally and then it spans out to organization right as long, and how many of us are still wrapped up in this? Our identities are around our expertise and what we, our, the shingle that we can hand out that, you know, that, you know, that we can put out there. And so we fight to be an expert. I'm an expert in this, that, or the other thing, right? We live in an era where I'm sorry, right? Like there's no such thing as an expert in my mind anymore, and you'll never hear. I don't think I'm an expert in anything. I know a lot of shit about a lot of stuff, right? But I'm no expert in anything because I'm trying to play with the parts, right? I want to understand stuff enough to try it, right? And then I can look for people who know more about it when I need them. But I actually don't want them in the design process, you know, because we'll never innovate. You know, if all we got to do is listen to a bunch of experts, you know, tell us, as you said earlier, like I already know what the answer is, right? And so I think when I started at Biff, I gave myself my own title because I could, right? So I called myself, you know, the founder, but I called myself the chief catalyst. And I did it on purpose, right? Not for the external marketplace because everyone scratches their head and says, what the hell is that? Right? I did it for me. I did it to remind myself that I had to reinvent myself from one of those folks who led through expertise, who led top down, right? Who led because I had the right answers instead of leading as a catalyst to create the conditions to bring out the best of everyone around you on your teams and the people that you're collaborating with. And I needed a daily reminder to say, Like you need to learn how to lead by being a catalyst because you're hardwired as one of these cats, you know, who thinks they're smart and knows the right answer all the damn time, right? And to this day, I still have to like be self-aware enough like to beat that uh, out of me because in a world that we live in today where we need transformation, not tweaks, right? We need to focus more on the conditions to help people reimagine get comfortable with, work together in different ways to change the value equations. We all know we can do far better. I mean, you name the design challenge. There's not a design challenge that we could pick that we can't break down and start to improve at a much faster pace than the way society is improving today, right? And we can talk about this COVID crisis and how many how painful has it been to watch how many people have suffered because we weren't ready whether it was our kids in the classroom you know or people in underserved communities you know with uh, disparities in our healthcare system you know that have caused morbidity and mortality I mean, it is painful painful to watch we've got to do better and the way we're going to do better is to stop thinking that we have the right answer and start creating the conditions to model something new and different that could actually change the outcome, that's the way we're gonna change the world.
0: Thanks, I, I, wish, I wish I could remember the authors right now off the top of my head, but boy, 20 plus years ago, I was doing a lot of work on knowledge management, right? Just how is knowledge created and curated in organizations? And one of the books at the end of the day was just basically saying, uh, if you want more knowledge, put, put out more water coolers. <laughs> it was it was like the the condition the conditions where a lot of new knowledge is generated is actually employees talking to each other and so I, I appreciate too what you're sa- is how do we create the conditions because it's it's hard to th- say that we'll know so that we become so prescriptive with the process or the procedures for something to happen. but if we can put these more of these guides and principles out there, I think we can enable quite a bit. Yeah, no,
1: I are mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, our mantras experiment all the time, right? Uh, and, and also to stop with this top-down nonsense, right? Like this is a bottom-up, this is a pull, you know, as John Hegel taught us, right? Yeah. So this is, you know, you get, it, it's amazing how we demean people and don't listen to people who we don't think, you know, can contribute to solutions that can improve their own life. Right. And and it comes across and people get it. Right. And it's also amazing when you flip that script and you light up a group and you listen and you trust them to design their own solutions and you create the conditions and access to things for them to do it. You don't need all those intermediaries and experts. You just need to get out of the way. Right. I'm not arguing, you know, I'm trying to be provocative here. So I'm not arguing against expertise. Right. Like I'm arguing against experts, right? Because yeah. people, like my favorite innovation junkies are some of the most, you know, are some of the leading experts in the world on dimensions across the, you know, from, from nanoscale up to cosmic levels, right? I've been really fortunate, I have an incredible network, right? But if you talk to them, the last thing they want to talk about. Is their expertise and the last thing they want to claim is that they're an expert they want to talk about it as you said at the beginning of our you know they want to talk about something they noticed when they went out for a walk today right and that's where we learn by in those conversations and we pull in the expertise as we need it without claiming the mantle of being an expert uh, as we design one
0: of the things that that I've noticed in my life is the people that I find most fascinating and who I would consider experts to put the last thing they'll say is that they're an expert, right? And, and yet they, uh, part of what I love is this almost this lifelong dedication to continuing to experiment and get better at their craft. Uh, so, but it, it's funny that sometimes I see those that claim expertise, don't don't really keep up they're, they're still not sticking with it. It's like it was a transaction. I did this for this long, so I'm an expert and I don't need to revisit.
1: Yeah. And you know, and we could get into all kinds of adjacent conversations here, you know, like how like what that what that insight, you know, means in academia, you know, is a really interesting conversation it's like you know, where do we learn from? What are the things that actually inspire us and give us the tools to change our behaviors, right? So that we can live better lives. Like you would think that that would be like the most important design challenge that we could solve. I mean, just watch how many people are not able to stitch into our economy today. Right. You know, and we, you know, we we talk for days and days and days about the ways we're going to tweak our education system. Like, we are so far past needing tweaks. uh, This isn't even a close call and yet we don't seem to create the conditions to start. Because you can't just wave your magic wand and all of a sudden transform these systems, right? You've got to let them emerge, right? But you can't shoot them down before they start, nor can you build regulatory moats around them to protect the incumbents that prevent these new models actually seeing the light of day in the marketplace and that's true in every social system you know, you know you can pick any one of them and you will see the incumbents will try to claim that it's to protect the customer but it isn't it's to protect them uh, and it's getting in the way of new models emerging that are organized for certain cohorts so I think there is still going to be very large models right but there are also gonna be lots of mid-size and small models for different cohorts. And people should be able to fluidly move across these models, right? Depending on which ones work best for them. Instead, we live in this world that we've a- we actually fight about it and we pass laws, right, to prevent any of this from happening. You know, and we just sit here and scratch our heads and say, when are we gonna start moving, right? Because too many people are being left behind and hurt.
0: Thank you. Do you want to switch gears to uh, talk about Biff a little bit in the, uh, the summit? Do you mind? Like I, I know that yeah. it, it went for 15 years, and it, it. my understanding is it will reemerge. But uh, just from a, a curation standpoint, can you walk me through like, kind of how you yeah. even put on the first summit and what your goals were and, and how you oh, brought sure. people together?
1: Oh, happy to. I mean, uh, to me, it's the same story because I didn't separate out my personal life. You know, from you know, when someone says, Tell me about Biff, like they're, they're the same, right? Because really what Biff was, was a way to move up this curve I was talking about. You know, for me personally, and then for others that you know, were crazy enough to hang around, you know, work on projects or come to a summit. We, we, we had 15 convenings modeled off of TED. I'm close personal friends with Richard Saul Werman. Who's a f- mentor to me, uh, and I will never forget. In year one of Biff, you know, I went to my friend uh, and said to him, "I, you know, I'm going to start a convening. You know, here's the guy who founded TED, right, right, right. You know, founded TED Med, you know, start, you know, catalyzed EG, right. You know, knows more about this than uh, than you know anybody. Uh, and I was my classic scientist MBA." Uh, so I had my spreadsheet, like, and told him how sophisticated I was going to be about the convening on one dimension. You know, there was the scale of the system, you know, from biology and nano all the way up to cosmic, you know, and, you know, on the bottom were the different systems like healthcare, like, and I, I, each cell had a, you know, like, here's what we're going to do in that thing. And he, he looked at me and he said, do you want me to, to actually tell you, you know, what I think, do you want me to help you? I said, Yes, Richard, of course. You know, of course I do. And I kid you not, he took the piece of paper out of my hands, he ripped it into a gazillion pieces. And he said, and he's used this stick now like lots and lots of times. You know, he said, Saul, you know, let me tell you what you should do with your convening. You should you should curate it like it's a dinner party at your home. And then you should let people listen in. That's it. Right? Don't. Like don't complicate it. Don't do anything different than that. Talk to people you want to talk to. Have interesting conversations, and invite other people that would be interesting, and let them listen. And so that's what we did. Now we 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 put some. You know, the only thing we did we never overdesigned it over 15 years. the The cardinal thing I've learned is it's not about curating the people who speak we're very blessed. We have an incredible network of people who have been our storytellers over the years, right? They're awesome. They're off the charts. They share personal stories of transformation because I make them share a personal story, not a can. Like these people all get, you know, they speak for a living, right? And so they could pull a speech out of their, you know, their. and I make them, you know, lock their file drawer, you know, and I make them share something genuine and personal, oftentimes not even about what they're known for. Right, Uh, and they they with trepidation they do it because they learn, right? But it's not. I always tell them uh, it's not about them. It's not about you on the stage. It's not about us. It's about curate the audience. We create the conditions for them to figure out what's important about what we say for themselves. We don't spoon feed it. We don't. We don't theme it. We don't say this is what you're supposed to know. We say we're going to catalyze conversations. We're gonna create the space for you to collide. We call it random collisions of unusual suspects. That's a core principle for us. We create the environment for more of those collisions. Talk to someone you don't know. Talk to someone with a different perspective. Talk to someone from a different industry. Talk to someone from a completely different discipline. And we curate the audience to make sure we've got a room full of curious people right and then and then we don't dictate like here you're in breakout room 10 you know 103c right we say figure it out take the hour no structure right collide with people go and over 15 years we've created more magic you know than I' uh, have a right you know to claim to be a part of Uh, It's absolutely amazing and that simple formula has worked. And you can imagine the network, the community, is the most important asset. We learned self-organized purposeful networks, which form the core of the business models we design. We learned how to do it. We modeled the behavior at our summits and then we took the insights from that and we integrated it into the design in every one of the projects we've done over 15 years, which is what paid the bills, right? And so community was central, right? Because that's how we learned how to do this stuff.
0: That, that's great. And, and, and th- I, I really appreciate the Wurman story too. Uh, it's good to have friends that will give you frank and uh, clear feedback, it. Huh? Indeed. In, well,
1: well, I mean, that's not a throwaway comment, right? It's good to have human-centered you know, innovators who work out loud, will share with you. I have a network now that over all these years, people always say, like, people still don't understand what social media is all about. They still think it's a marketing, right? Like, no, it, it's not even close to it. Like, that's not what it's about at all, right? What, what social... Platform, social media platforms did is it was the technology that allowed us right to co- co- to collide with more unusual suspects to create connections and to start working on making them purposeful. It was the underlying architecture, you know, for that. And so over the years now, when I throw out an idea, like I don't wait for it to be fully polished and baked. You know, I tweet it out right, and then all of a sudden. I get my share, more than my share, of that was the stupidest thing you, I've ever, ever heard. Or, or someone will say, that's a really great idea. Have you talked to so-and-so? Let me connect you. And over 15 years, this is how, this is my school. This is my daily school. This is how I get better faster, right? It's all selfish, but then I share what I'm doing and what it means and so i don't try to proselytize to say that's what you should do i'm just telling you you know that this is what it did for me you know and a lot of people paid attention over the years and yeah. tell me stories that just endured, like just warm my heart about how they took the lessons to heart how they deployed them themselves and uh, all the great things that happened uh you know, because of it over the years
0: thanks one one of the things too about the way you you ended up kind of almost unstructuring the summit right to to facilitate the conversations compared to to other conferences uh it's reminding me of uh are you familiar with ed hess's work on uh hyperlearning no so ed's work came out last year the book came out last year and the the general notion is for us to make this transformation we have to we have to unlearn certain things and we have to learn new things quickly. And he runs through a process. And I, I, I don't mean to, to play that part short. It's just, but at its core, he says we need meaning making conversations with other people and meaning making to him. He says, starts with agenda, agenda less conversations, sitting down with people without an agenda, and t- so when I'm when I'm hearing you talk about uh, personal stories and, and and provoking these and setting up these conditions, to me that sounds like scaling these meaning-making conversations. And then, like you said, this this network effect when you can find out somebody that has interest or passion, connecting those. And so I think you might appreciate Ed's work, but just also somebody yeah. else that's saying uh, it, it it's about these meaning-making conversations that are going to help push us forward and help with this hyper learning that we need to help transform.
1: Yeah, oh, I, I, I love it. I, I think that's totally right. I mean, it's all about those conversations. Just look at what uh, I, I know you and I have uh, collided a bunch on, on Clubhouse now, right? right? J- just since it started, because it's yep. new and we're trying to figure out what it means. But it, that's exactly what it means. Like, it, it takes the friction out of having those conversations and I would just add to what you said, the importance of the unusual suspects part. You can't just have more conversations with all the usual suspects, although that's lovely, right? But nothing new comes in unless new perspectives come in. So, so talking about education reform with a room full of education reformers, right? You start to hear the same things over and over and you don't hear the, like different ways to think about the problem, different situations where lifelong learning comes in handy. Right. right That's right. not the only use case yeah. you know, where where lifelong learning matters. In fact, it's not the most interesting use case, you know, for where lifelong learning matters, but yet it's the problem they're trying to solve, which is, you know, take this the structure of, you know, of education, you know, and have it, how to innovate it as opposed to starting with the learner and saying what does the learner actually need and maybe all that stuff we've done for the last 50 years maybe some of it you know isn't the most value adding stuff uh, given where we live in the 21st century today i don't know,
0: just know. I, yeah i and i love i love the random collision and unusual suspects notion uh i was just <laughs> uh earlier this week i was talking with with nick from tellart so we And we were talking about problems and, and, you know, just kind of innovation and design junkies just talking to each other. Uh, But one of the things that, that we were talking about was even just this, this little podcast that I've started with the number of guests from different from comedians to scientists, to business leaders, to designers. One of the things that we thought would be interesting was what if we framed a problem, and then just like ran a random number generator from like the episode or guest. And what what would it be like if these three guests had to talk about this particular problem or or these four guests had to talk about this problem, but just the different perspectives you might get from a practicing musician, from a comedian, from from a microbiologist. And so we were just playing with that, that notion too of uh, what if you could randomly get people that are really good at their individual craft to start thinking about about problems and so it's just an idea we're playing with right now so uh, i'll let you know if we if we do anything more with that
1: well i, I mean i one thing one little snippet i'll share with you to, coming back to your friend at Tellart, uh very crazy cool design boutique uh yeah. and as you know i know uh his partner co-founder uh matt cotton yeah ironically true story this weekend matt uh, I posted some silly thing, which I often do. Uh, it, we were preparing for our Passover seder, uh, and I got uh, I got KP duty to peel the potatoes, which I often get, uh, you know, a mindless task that uh, that I'm trusted with uh, in in the kitchen uh, for the kugel the, for our Passover dinner. Yeah. Right? Just and I posted the picture of it and, and had a cutesy title over it. And out of the blue, and I haven't heard from him, you know, probably in you know the last eighteen months to two years, right? Matt caught him with a comment, you know, with some depth to it, you know, about potatoes and potato peelers and the design of potato peel. Like just down the rabbit hole that we started our conversation with. The reason I share this little snippet with you is like. Don't be surprised if it's easier to start conversations that get to the place you need to be if you let them emerge rather than think you have to engineer them. Everyone go to this conversation where you need the prompt, like, okay, everyone's going to talk about what it takes to reinvent healthcare today, right? I think the if you let people engage and decide for themselves what's interesting, including just random stuff, and they engage around those things, what you find are, are innovation junkies, right? Create new stuff, get to really important insights, and end up with solutions that could fix the actual problem, right? Better than people who set out and say, in this room, we're gonna solve this problem. Um, just, a, just an aside here. I, I've seen that phenomenon happen so many times.
0: Saul, thank you. Uh, one of the things I like to do with guests before I close an interview is talk about the notion of advice, either good advice you've received from a mentor that like it, sometimes it has just this elegant payload that continues to deliver over time. As you get older, You 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 see even more wisdom in what was shared. Or uh, stealing from Austin Kleon, steal like an artist. Uh, he says, "When we're giving advice, we just we're just talking to our younger self." So, what? Either good advice that you've received, or good advi- or advice you wish you would have received, or, or both.
1: Yeah. Well, I, uh, I get lots of advice, as, as I've already shared with you. I, I open up the door for it, uh, and I love it. Um, and I'm not afraid of it. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, 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 I don't engage trolls, so I don't yes. respond to everything you can't, uh, right. but I try to engage. Like, I, 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 like if, if there's an intelligent, like, respectful conversation to be had, uh, I'm in. I, I'll tell you what happens to me today, because I'm old, um, you know, and, and I've been doing this for a long time. Uh, I get advice now that comes back to me, you know, from 20 years ago where people who remembered something I said or did, because obviously I say a lot of stuff, right? Uh, And they remind me of stuff I said, right? In such an endearing way, you know, that it, it's almost new again to me. <laughs> and, and I have to, like, look in the mirror and say, okay, wait a minute. Like, you know, I, I, that's interesting that I said that. Like, I might not even remember why I said it, uh, but I can now reflect on it again. And it happens to me enough every day, every week, you know, to where there's pretty, a steady flow of, you know, helpful advice that, that could be acted upon. You know, now the hard part is you can't act on everything, so how do you focus and you know, do the things that, you know, that you're going to do with uh, intention? Uh, but I think the role of trusted advisor, you know, John Hagel talks about this a lot, you know, is one of the most important roles. Very different than expertise or I have the answer. like trusted advisor means I can disclose to you a real genuine human story, a foible something that's like that happened to me, something that's bothering me without you judging it. Right. And I can have you react to it, not just with empathy, because I have a, although I like empathy, uh, but you know, I'm not the, I'm not the all empathy all the time guy, right. I'm empathy to understand, but then I flip into a mode where I'm trying to be trusted advisor. I'm finding myself lately trying to resist it more. Right, you know, because some people want more empathy and less trusted advice. Uh, in fact, most people do. Uh, so I'm trying to shift the balance, but right. I think the trust the trusted advisor role is really important. So I welcome and have a lot of trusted advisors, you know, that uh, send me advice on everything from minor funny stuff, you know, to major, you know, kind of shift changing, you know, stuff that that's important to consider.
0: I, I love hearing that uh, about you and kind of uh, being open to feedback and it, it, it fits with what I, I know of you and just sharing with early manager and mentor in my career. She just basically said it, from her experience, superstars thrive on feedback, and it's just being open to it is how people get, get better. And if you're not open to feedback, you're going to struggle. And I'm not saying a quick, yeah.
1: Can I share a quick? I just thought of it. I, 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 I know you'd want me to put this in. <laughs> I just remembered advice I got you know, from uh, uh, Roger Martin, uh, someone uh, most of us in this innovation world know, uh, who says it the way it is with such competence, you know, brilliance. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. So I've learned a lot from him. I'm glad to be friends with him. He once told me when he was describing what an innovator is. Right, And he, he once you know, said that an innovator is someone with a clear and strong point of view. Clear and strong point of view. Which we all know, like you have to have a point of view and you can't be afraid of, of putting it out there. We tend, be, you know, we tend to be pretty good on this dimension. But he said, they have a strong and clear point of view and they know they're missing something. And they know they're missing something. And it's that missing puzzle piece, it's the, that, it's the hunt for what's missing that drives us right? more than the you know, sharing the strong point of view, right? And we put the strong point of view out there because we want it to be challenged, because we want it to get better, right? But we also put it out there because we're in the hunt for what we're, that piece that we're missing and that's what makes you know the innovators, at least the ones that I respect and love to hang with. That's what separates them. It's that that search for the missing puzzle piece, right? That can help us get better faster. And you never know where you're going to find it, which is why we need more of those random. Options.
0: I think, yeah. I boy, I love that framing. That's really powerful, and I I appreciate you sharing that with me, and even as, as you were saying that, I was thinking about, I draw a lot of inspiration from improv and the principles of improv, especially like the yes and, right, the building. But, you know, there's another part of improv that is declaration, right? Declare and commit uh, to explore. And and I so I'm, I'm here to that declaration, and uh, sometimes these strong points of view to your point, they can be very provocative, right, to engage conversation, and some of that is, he's in search of that missing piece, but I'd never heard that framing before. And, and, uh, now I don't think I'll forget it. So I really, really appreciate you sharing that with me.
1: Oh, uh, no, it's my, it's my pleasure too. Yeah. So many, uh, so many, you know, really important actionable pieces of wisdom, you know, that, you know, you, you know, we, you know, you see them up on Twitter and you think people are just promoting themselves with you know, tr- you know, frivolous tweets. Like, no, <laughs> no we're sharing points of view you know either early on or we're sharing points of view that you know really make a difference in other people's lives uh, and 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 it's free like it's just out there you know you can ignore them you can absorb them you can act on them like it, it's it's a good time to be an innovation engineer.
0: Saul, thank you so much for joining me on the iowa idea podcast It. it uh, pleasure to have you here and just can't thank you enough for taking the time.
1: Love you, Matt. Thanks for having me.